Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Today we're talking about what about Christians who don't act like it? It's kind of funny back in... um... I went to Washington Bible College in Maryland, and we studied a lot of books written by Dallas faculty, and that kind of determined, helped me determine where I was going to go to seminary. Um, I said, why not go and study under Dr. Ryrie and Walbert and these people? So I made the decision to come to Dallas Seminary, and in 1980, I made a trip down, and um, I headed my wife, just looked for housing and so forth, and pulled into the most convenient parking spot in the in the campus, which was close to all the administration buildings and things that I wanted to visit, uh, and made my round around the campus, came back out and looked at the parking spot, and it was Dr. Irie's parking spot. And I was looking for the security with the cuffs, you know, um, when I saw that. And here we are 25 later, and I'm in this parking spot again. And I don't, don't feel like I should be here. But it's good to good to speak with my shoes on. Um, I just got back from India, and where I was in the chapel, we take our shoes off, and uh, out of reverence, it's not a legalistic thing, out of reverence, and go in, and I preach there, and I told the uh, the audience that um, I'm realizing one of my worst nightmares today, that my preacher's recurring nightmare. You know, you look down and you realize you're preaching, and you don't have any shoes on. At least it's better than the preacher who dreamed he was preaching, woke up, found out he was. So everybody knows somebody who calls himself a Christian, but really doesn't act like it, right? I've been a pastor for a good while, uh, started a church and pastored for 19 years. And people are always coming up to me, as they probably have you, and say, what about, what about Bob? I like to call it the what about Bob question, you know? What about my uncle Bob or my father-in-law Bob? Says he's a Christian. It's going to church, but doesn't act like it. I wanted to address the question today just as a kind of a pastoral topic, not as a heavy theological topic. We're preaching to the choir here. We know pretty much our options. But how do you deal with that question? Uh, what are the different options and ways of looking at it? it? There's a danger of being, of course, overly simplistic and saying, well, the person was never saved to begin with. We don't want to do that. And I don't think you and I would would normally do that. Uh, it's a It's a quick resort of people all over the world to do that. But it's just overly simplistic. There's a more biblical way of dealing with it. Nor is it proper to compromise the gospel to accommodate these people. Uh, One of the leading proponents of another view probably came to his other view of the gospel because he said he had a friend who apostatized, who was a Christian. He used to do evangelistic work with him. He apostatized, and he's and became an atheist, he said, I had no category for this person. So he pretty much invented a category. The person was not saved, of course. Um, So we don't want to compromise our gospel either by front-loading it with new conditions, so you're not really saved now unless you do this or that and make these commitments, or you're not really saved unless you follow through and do a certain amount of works. Both of those messages compromise the gospel of grace. Another thing uh, that I think we recognize is that a person... A Christian may be motivated to do good works because of um, the fear of hell, uh, but that's not always the best motivation in the Christian life. On the other hand, the unbeliever 
who's only a Christian by name, um, may be considered a true Christian if he does good works. And so we have to do something beyond, besides just look at the works in their life as well. And of course, you know, this, our interpretation of how we deal with this category of people influences our interpretation of many Bible passages as well, as it should be the other way around. Uh, passages in Hebrews, the warning passages there, interpretation of 1 John, and so forth. Let me give you some examples, probably examples that you've run into uh, before in your ministry, people that you might know very well. We've talked about the problem, but uh, you probably know Mark. Mark is a fellow who uh, claimed to be a Christian. He started out really well. Uh, his uh, wife, Lisa, was excited about his growth as a Christian. He served as a, a deacon one time. He used to teach Sunday school. Uh, but slowly he started to fade away in his spiritual interests and um, no longer seems to be interested in spiritual things. And Lisa's getting concerned about him and really actually irritated with him. Here's a man who says at one time he thought he had God's call upon his life even to be a preacher, though he never followed through. And now he's not even interested enough to go to church. And she's wondering, is, is he saved? What would you say to her? What would you say to him? Maybe you've met uh, Jessica or Jessica's parents. Uh, Rob and Donna, 16-year-old daughter Jessica, uh, hung out with the wrong crowd. That was her problem. Uh, she was, had been raised in the church. She hung out with the wrong crowd, and she started doing what they do, drinking and, and even doing drugs. And uh, she was addicted to drugs. But she went to a church camp, and at the church camp, she was saved and uh, made a profession of faith and talked to the youth pastor about it, talked to the pastor about it, and even went on a mission trip later to Mexico. And she was so excited, and her parents were so grateful. They know that they had seen an answer to their prayers. But about six months later, Jessica's hanging out with the old crowd again. And a few months later, they have to commit her to rehab. Did God answer their prayers? Was Jessica really saved? Maybe you met um, Jim. Jim has told his neighbors, Craig and Carla, uh, that he's not really interested in being Christian. He's very upfront with them. They took him to church one time and, and told him afterwards that he needed to become a Christian. But when he looks at their, Craig and Carla's lives, he says, you know, I don't really have, you don't really have anything that I don't have. He knows that Craig's cheated on Carla. He knows that Carla cheats on her expense account with their boss. He sees them drop the kids off the church, and sometimes they go themselves, but not all the time. He hears the shouting matches, and he figures, you know, I've got everything they have. In fact, I got a little more time to go fishing on Sunday. And then there's Frank. Frank just can't seem to get his life together. He bounces from one church to another. Sometimes he gets involved, but never really can commit to anything or be counted upon for anything. He's left a trail of broken relationships, a wife and three children in one church, and in the next church, He's picked up a live-in girlfriend, but he says he believes the Bible. He always goes to Bible-believing churches. Uh, he, he can explain the gospel to you, but he, he doesn't have the discipline to keep a job. He's always out of money and always in debt. He just seems to lead an irresponsible lifestyle. Have you ever met Frank? Have you ever met any of these people? What do, what do we do with them? Do we just say, well, they're not Christians? Let's preach the gospel to them. Well, they could probably explain the gospel to you in some cases, perhaps. Or do we say, let's change the gospel? 
We don't want to do that, do we? Either front-loading or back-loading. So what do we do with them? There's some different options that we have. Uh, one option would be that uh, these people, they were Christians, okay, but they lost their salvation. This is the view that we would call Arminianism, and um, I think in this crowd we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about that. We believe in uh, the security of the believer as taught in the Scripture, uh, in Romans 8, and John 10, and other passages. It's another option that we would find very much on the Calvinistic side of theology, and that's that they were never really truly saved because they lacked the good works to prove it. And so these would say that they never really believe because belief includes commitment and obedience. And obviously they're not, they don't look committed and they're not really obeying. So their faith didn't include these things. They never truly believed. Of course, the problem is, is we're examining their works and works are relative and works are subjective. And, and there's no definitive list of what works really qualify for anything. And as uh, Dr. Ryrie very well said, uh, works, good works are not always visible. And so how do we use them as a basis for any kind of judgment? It's impossible to judge someone's salvation based on the exterior works that they do. So we need to find options, I think, that are more consistent with our gospel of grace, our, our position of grace, and living by grace. Here's three op- or four options, I think, that uh, help us think the problem through a little more biblically. It could be that they were never truly saved. And I think that uh, as far as a pastoral suggestion, it's a good idea never to assume because people call themselves a Christian or even because somebody says they believed in Jesus. It's probably a good idea not to assume that they're Christians based on that until we hear a little clearer testimony. After all, there are those who are cultists who call themselves Christians. And, um, you know, there's the cultural Christian in America. We never quite know what that term means. And it is very helpful to ask diagnostic questions. Uh, Two very well-worn questions I've learned to use in ministry that have helped me quite a bit uh, are the old questions that developed by James Kennedy. If you were to die tonight, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? But the second question, and more important, one, the more telling question is, if you were to die and God would say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? I found this to be very useful because it helps. It, it requires of people to give an answer for the basis of their assurance that they are going to, to heaven or have eternal life. Most, many of the answers you'll get uh, would say something like, well, I've, done, I've tried to live a good life or I've done the best I could or I've done pretty good. I haven't killed anybody. And that's a tip-off that they, they really are not saved. Sometimes the question broadsides them and, and surprises them, so I think you have to be a little, little patient with them in drawing the answer out, and uh, you don't want to coach them in the answer, but um, I think sometimes uh, uh, people haven't really thought that through about what they would say. But it, it can become apparent with that question that they're trusting in Christ alone or they're not. What you want to hear, of course, is that they're trusting in Jesus Christ for eternal life and him alone. I found that to be very helpful, especially the second question. What would you say to God if you were to die? And he said, why should I let you into heaven? The strangest answer I ever got to that was a lady who said, I'd say, move over, God, I'm coming in. <laughs> okay, we got some work to do here. 
What do you do with somebody like that that you're convinced is, was never truly saved? Well, of course, you need to explain the gospel clearly to them. But we emphasize the word clearly. Uh, that's what probably got them in this whole mix-up uh, of assuming they're Christians to begin with. So we explain the gospel clearly to them, what it means to believe, what it means to believe in Christ alone, and place your confidence in him alone, and, um, and then what it, what it doesn't mean. Uh, baptism or coming forward in a church and, and things like that, the people so confused with uh, belief. So those who are never truly saved, there's some suggestions. That's one option, and we always have to consider that possibility. Another option are those Christians who have never really matured in their Christian walk. These are those who um, may have made a decision, may have responded to an invitation, walked an aisle. Uh, they may have done something. They may have believed in Christ, uh, but in their context, never had an opportunity to grow. Um, perhaps they go to a, a church that just doesn't emphasize growth. I remember I had a friend one time, he, he uh, showed up at our church. I knew he went to another church, and I said, uh, why are you here? I know you go to another church. He said, well, I, I got sick of the gospel. And what do you mean? He said, every Sunday they just keep telling me how to be saved. Well, I've done that. Now I want to know what to do. Unfortunately, though, that's the situation in many churches. It's just every Sunday it's the same message over and over again. And the poor people not only don't grow, but they don't know they should grow. What are some suggestions for these people? Well, of course, teach the word. That's where growth comes from, isn't it? Uh, like newborn babes, we desire that pure milk of the word that we might grow, might grow thereby. The word of God has to be taught. No new Christian should be abandoned in the spiritual nursery. I like a quote from Dr. Rodmarker about uh, the um, America is in danger of becoming a great, the church in America is in danger of becoming a great spiritual nursery, and we need to move, move people out of the nursery into the infantry. But uh, many churches don't have a process for doing that. Uh, if a church is teaching the Word of God, if the church is emphasizing expository preaching, then they'll be fed a steady diet. I'm greatly distressed about a drift away from expository preaching that I'm seeing. I just got back from teaching people how to preach expositorily and uh, in a context where they, they don't even know what that is. But when they caught the idea, they're so excited about it. Oh, the text has a message? Uh, but that's a whole other message. Get them into a church that preaches and teaches expository or systematically and, instead of just uh, preaching to, to needs, but going beyond that and modeling for people how to handle the word themselves and be under its authority and its message. Well, motivate people with grace. So many times I think people stay immature because they've never caught the concept of God's grace in their lives. And they've been motivated, they've been tried to be manipulated or motivated by guilt or by fear. Um, and that really doesn't get the job done. True Christian growth is going to be a result of their sense of gratitude, uh, love, worship for God who's done all that he's done for them. I say I like to preach the gospel of grace to the unsaved and the grace of the gospel to the saved. There's a lot of saved people who don't understand fully and fully grasp and appreciate the grace of the gospel that saved them. 
And I think when we do, we all become more worshipful and our lives become a thank you letter to God. The people need to be motivated by that kind of grace, the freedom that it brings. And we love him because he first loved us. Another thing that we've been talking about here at the conference is this whole idea of Christian accountability. That's where the, uh, the idea of rewards comes in and the judgment seat of Christ. Many Christians are, uh, are not taught, I think, adequately about this. It's, it's largely a topic that's not addressed very much in church. Uh, when I speak on rewards, I, I often get the reaction, I've never heard that before. Uh, but it's always a good response. And if you, if you were to look at the teaching of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Peter, the judgment seat of Christ and rewards is just woven into almost everything they say and taught. The, the accountability for our lives that are going to be evaluated, the judgment seat of Christ. And I think people need to know that there are consequences both in this life and in eternity for the choices that they make and the lifestyle that they live and for the growth that they evidence. So that's a motivation, I think, a good biblical motivation to move on. I think an important thing to do is to give these immature believers a vision of God's purpose for their life. I think some people have the understanding that the purpose for their life is to get saved. And now I've got my ticket. And, uh, and I'll go to church until I go home to glory. We need to give people a, God's vision of, a vision of God's purpose for their life. By that, I mean that God has saved them for a purpose, and he's gifted them for a purpose. And it's really all about stewardship. What are you going to do with this new life that you now have? And what are you going to do with the gifts that God has given to you? What has God called you to do now with your unique personality, your unique talents, your unique gifts, your unique situation and context of life? If we can see a purpose, if we can communicate a purpose to them, just as Jesus did when he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, he gave them a vision for what they could do, how they could fish for men. What a wonderful word picture that is. Well, really, that's our, our purpose. We need to explain to people how they can live that purpose out in their life context. I think it's a, it's a motivation to get people into a, a good Christian context where there are good examples of people who are growing. I think sometimes those who have believed in Christ, who remain in immaturity, remain there because they never see any, any model of someone who's really growing and uh, and and growing in the word of God and growing in their ministry and so forth. And so they're just happy to be with the crowd. But if we get them in a good context, a good fellowship of others who um, are growing and excited about it, uh, I think it's likely to be caught, not just taught. So that means getting them in a good church, getting them in a good Bible study and a good fellowship with, uh, around people who are growing. And uh, somebody that you know that would, is immature should be plugged in to to a, a, a discipleship group, or um, just get around some other Christians, you, for example. So that's an option, that they're just not mature. Another option is that they're Christians who are struggling with sin. Met any of these? These people come to Christ, but they have a lot of baggage. They have old habits. They have addictions. They've had drug problems. They've had drinking problems. They've had problems with sexual immorality. They become Christians, and there's growth and change in their life, but they realize that there's still a lot of tug from the old man. There's still a lot of influence there, and they have a struggle with sin. 
um, some besetting sin, maybe that they've been dealing with from youth that had, had brought them into bondage and, and keeps like a siren song wooing them back. I, I had a, a friend, a neighbor who was an alcoholic for 32 years. He got saved. He never touched another drop of alcohol the rest of his life. And yet, maybe it's been your experience to find people who were saved out of it and just struggled with it, still struggle with it. I had another friend who was, um, at a very young age, became addicted to drugs. At the age of 18, um, he was sent away to a rehab center by the judge. He got off of drugs. He got saved. It was a Christian place. He came back. He witnessed to me and my friends. Yeah, but they didn't have a follow-up program. And you know what? The tug was too strong for him. He got back on heroin, and he died of it. I believe it was a case of a death. Uh, sin unto death. But I, you and I have seen the struggle, the reality of sin. Anyway, what do we do with people who are struggling with sin? Because that can certainly look like somebody who's not saved. They're, they're succumbing to these powers. Help them understand that they have a new identity and a new power. This is the truth of Romans chapter 6. They have a new master. They have a new identity. And Romans chapter 8, they have a new power in them. I think these are, these are foundational truths. I think Romans is a book of discipleship. I think that is its purpose, to disciple us in the Christian life and how to live it. And Romans 6 and 8 is where he really gets down, 6, 7 and 8 is where he really gets down to business about our new identity and our new power. And in Romans 7, can we find a more realistic view of sin in a Christian's life than Romans 7 where Paul is struggling with the wretched man that he is before he realizes the power of of the Spirit in chapter 8. I think we have to hold a realistic view of sin and Satan. Uh, while we hold a realistic view of God's power over sin, we realize that sin is a very strong power, and Satan is a very real adversary who prowls around the earth seeking whom he may devour. That is his goal. And when he focuses his energy or his efforts upon a Christian, that Christian can feel that onslaught. And we have to have a realistic view. We know Christ is stronger than Satan, but we don't want to underrate him. He's been in the business a long time. I think it's good for people to understand that and for us to understand that as we deal with them. For people who are struggling with sin, uh, from a pastoral perspective, it's a good idea to get them into accountability relationships where they can be honest and open about their struggle, where people can hold them accountable and check up on them and ask them how things are going. Not so they can point their finger or accuse them, but just so that they can be there and be friends. And somebody knows that they're not alone in the battle. And that somebody is going to ask them in a couple of days, how are things going? And of course, there are occasions where I think it's a good idea to seek counseling. So that people can understand more about uh, the biblical view of sin and Christ's power over sin. Or maybe even get some insight into why they do some things themselves. Another option would be those who are backslidden or carnal Christians. We know this is a biblical category from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, those who are considered carnal, who had a worldly attitude, were quarreling among themselves, and Paul was rebuking them for that attitude. Sometimes we call them backslidden Christians who have made poor choices. The parable of the soils tells us that there are those who had the cares of the world 
choke out their growth, those who were um, stopped by uh, the trials and temptations of life. And it says that they didn't bring fruit to maturity in Luke 8, 14. Paul talked about Demas who forsook him because he loved this present age in 2 Timothy 4.10. What do we do with somebody who's a backslidden or a carnal Christian who's just chosen to go to side with sin instead of with God? Well, here's a good use of the word repent. Nobody's going to argue about what it means here. They could be confronted with their sin and uh, told that they need to repent. They need to have a change of heart or change of attitude about their sin, and they need to change their conduct about their sin. In the right context, perhaps you would be that messenger. I think these people need to be warned of temporal and eternal consequences both. That there are temporal consequences in this world, and that there are eternal consequences. That there are things that they could be giving up for all of eternity. I think people who are living as carnal Christians need to be told that God doesn't let his children run wild because he loves us too much. Maybe a last resort, but some of us who are pastors have had to go this far, initiate church discipline. Now, the interesting thing about church discipline is the whole premise of church discipline is that there are Christians who sin, right? Otherwise, if, if they're Christians are sinning, and the simplistic view would be, well, they're just calling them not Christians, and we would evangelize them, we wouldn't discipline them. But the whole premise behind church discipline and the teaching of the scriptures about church discipline is that there are believers who can sin, and they need, to, they need to be pressured lovingly but firmly to stop doing what they're doing. I think a real key to dealing with folks from a grace perspective is to remind them who they are. Um, threatening them with hell doesn't seem to be the biblical solution, but what does Paul do? He reminds people who they are. Live up to the calling by which you are called. Paul doesn't cast doubt on their salvation. Rather, he reminds them who they are. I'll make a few concluding comments. If you have questions, we can talk about some things, and maybe you have some better ideas of how to handle some of these people. If a person doesn't act like a Christian, it's too simplistic just to say, well, they're not a believer, although that is true that they may not be. If they're not, we should share the gospel clearly with them. But if, they're, if they are a believer, um, or if they can give a clear testimony of salvation by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, I don't see any other option but to take them at their word and to proceed on that basis. If they give me a clear testimony, then I, I think the other options would come into play. Why then are they not acting like a, a Christian? Are they, they fall in the category of immature, or they just hadn't had an opportunity, uh, or are they carnal? Uh, what is the problem there? But if somebody gives me a clear testimony for Christ, and it's just superfluous for me to say, well, you're not a believer. Let me explain the gospel again to you. That would be superfluous unless I change the gospel and add something to it, which we don't want to do. A more biblical approach is to hold them accountable, to instruct them or nurture them or counsel them or rebuke them, confront them, get them into a situation where they can grow and be fed. I think it does great damage to make people uh, doubt their salvation by questioning it if they have a clear testimony for Christ to make them question and doubt their salvation. I think that the, that does a great damage to them 
Because when we cast them on the basis of performance, we undermine all assurance. And that's just totally opposite to what I see in the scriptures. We think about how Christ dealt with Peter in all of his falls and faults. We don't see him taking salvation away from Peter. We see him lovingly dealing with him to the end. And then Paul has to confront the same Peter in Galatians chapter 2. A Peter who was being inconsistent with grace, wasn't following through with the grace message. Paul doesn't take salvation away from Peter. He just confronts him lovingly and talks about his error and instructs him in grace and how he's really contradicting the gospel by his behavior. We don't want to undermine people's assurance. I think when we do that, we defeat all of our purposes. If I came home from work and I said to my son, uh, son, have you, have, you, have you done your homework? Yeah, Dad. Good, you're my son. I'm proud of you. Well, son, have you, have you cleaned your room? Uh, yeah, Dad, I did. I cleaned my room. Son, you're my boy. Hey, did you mow the lawn like I asked you to? Did, did you mow the lawn like I asked you to? Oh, didn't do that, Dad. I don't know if you're my son. My son would obey me. You're not, you're not a being. You're not in my family. And what does that do to a person? What does that do to a person to question them and their identity and, and their acceptance with God? Is that a healthy basis for growth and maturity? Not at all. What a tragedy that is, though, that Christians live with that kind of doubt and that kind of fear. I just came back from India, and, and when, you, when you go overseas in most countries, what you find is a big mix of theology, and it's not quite as sorted out as it is in America. And so most of the, most of the crowd I'm dealing with is Armenian. They, they just believe, you know, you've got to keep on pushing on or you just lose it all. Well, it just happened to be in my schedule, in the school schedule, that I, I was going to teach them how to preach. And so I've got a class of 20 students, and I'm teaching them how to preach, and took them through the book of Galatians so we could get that in there, you know, along the way. And they had to learn the message of Galatians and so forth, which, so that, all that was good. But after reading 20 sermons, you know what you find out when it comes down to application? And I spent so much time talking them, to them about how to make applications and make them specific and so forth. I kept reading the same thing over again. Keep, you know, keep on trying harder and make sure you get to heaven. Keep on. Every sermon ended that way. I got a sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, and this person was preaching on love is patient, love is kind, does not, is not boast, is not rude. And I said, surely there's some good applications here for Christians. You know what the application was? We need to be more patient, more kind, so we make sure we get to heaven. On the last day of class, I said, look, look, students, I said, I know we might have a different of belief here, but it seems like every, we're talking about applications, and every application I'm reading not every, this is about half the class. I'm saying there's so many of you who are just saying we need to try harder to make sure we get to heaven. At some point, we need just to settle this, don't we? We need just to say, yeah, God has accepted me. I'm a child of God. And here's some good applications of how I can go on in the Christian life. So it's not a motivation to constantly, it's like getting stuck in first gear. And we need to help people move out of that. Uh, you get them in a good fellowship, get them in a good context, instruct them, whatever it takes. I think in the end, we all admit that really only God knows if somebody is truly a Christian or not. And so if somebody asks me, what about Uncle Bob? Is he a Christian? My first answer is, well, only God knows for sure, and maybe Bob. But here's some other, here's some options. Maybe he never believed, or maybe he's, uh, 
immature, or maybe he's uh, stuck in some kind of sin that's keeping him from growing, or maybe he's never been in a context like of, of growth like that, or maybe he's backslidden or something. But in the end, really, only God knows. Well, you might have some questions or comments, and we've got a little time, I think, to talk about it. The question is, which is a little more difficult question, is what about apostates who actually renounce their faith in Christ and say they no longer believe? Um, Only God knows. And and that's pretty much it. Only God knows. But, you know, again, if somebody has believed the gospel, and and if if they have believed, that's the if, if they believe the gospel, then they were born again. If they were born again, they cannot be unborn. Uh, A person can renounce anything. I know a guy that went through seminary and, and, and went to, to Oxford to get his doctorate and became an atheist in the process. But I know people around him who know and believe he's saved. He can talk about being an atheist all he wants to. But uh, somebody said sometimes a man's morality dictates his philosophy. It's just convenient to be an atheist because he was wanting to get into pornography and stuff. If somebody was in sin, living in sin, but you think they're a Christian, you think they may not be saved and their life is evidencing sin, how would you deal with that and approach that person? Well, I would, I would probably talk to them. Is there, I would probably start out with the, the diagnostic questions. You know, um, What would you say to God? If, if then, if, of course, if they didn't give a clear testimony, you want to give them a clear gospel. If they, if they gave a clear testimony, I would say, uh, do you think you're living up to what God has intended for you? I think that's the biblical motivation. Is always give them something to live up to. Somebody said grace holds a halo over our heads and then help us grow into it. And we need to we need to give people a bigger concept of what God wants them to be than just saved. Got my ticket to heaven. There's a kingdom purpose. This is all in preparation for a kingdom, and there are consequences for the choices we make here. I, it's a big, big picture thing we need to communicate to them, I think. That's a good question. Does one sin categorize somebody as carnal, or if it's a more visible sin, or does one sin outweigh the other? That's a good question. I think a lot about that. I don't see a definitive list in the Scripture that gives the list that makes somebody carnal. And that's, of course, the problem with those who want to say we can lose our salvation. They have no definitive list. You know, I'm still waiting for somebody to produce that list. You know what? I think there's a lot of us who on the outs- are on the outside are looking pretty good, but because of our, our thoughts and inner motives and so forth, you know, Paul says, I don't even judge myself, 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I don't even feel confident to judge myself. I'm just going to have to wait for that day. So how do we, when do we call somebody carnal? Well, Paul evidently thought that he could based on, you know, the fact that they were quarreling and, and pitting one preacher against another. Uh, I think there's a point where we can say, yeah, somebody's carnal. And probably be different for each of us, but it's kind of like we know it when we see it. But sometimes we don't see it and don't know it, and it's still carnality. It's a good question. I don't know exactly how to answer that. How do we get a believer, a new believer, plugged in and identify his giftedness and get him in the, going in the right direction like that? That's a good question. Um, I find so many places that if you ask a crowd of Christians you know what your spiritual gift is, you know, just a general crowd, probably not this crowd. There's so many people who don't. And uh, I think people get excited when they realize that they really are gifted to do something. 
for the Lord. And, uh, and so just just the idea of instructing them in, in the spiritual gifts, but see the church has to be doing that. Church has to be teaching that and instructing them. It needs to be part of their discipleship plan and program. What is your gift and what is the ministry that God wants you to fulfill in life? And there's all kinds of ways to do that, that you know, gift inventories and, and so forth. But certainly, hopefully, the pastor is teaching on that and they're introduced to the concept. Many Christians don't even have the concept of it. Um, I mean, there's, there's the way I do it. used to do it in my church. There's certain materials we use, and every church probably has their own different materials to use. But somehow they need to get in the process of being educated about the gifts, know what the gifts are, help to identify their gift, and then give an opportunity to use their gift and plug into the right thing because we don't want to plug them in the wrong thing. We get them all frustrated and burned out. A lot of people are doing the wrong things in churches, and they're getting all tired and burned out and frustrated, and you need to protect them from that. My, my understanding of sin unto death is that it's a very gracious act of God whereby he, he probably preserves for us our reward in heaven. Uh, I, I have a couple friends from my teenage days. I grew up in a pretty rough neighborhood of Washington, D.C., and a lot of us were into all kinds of stuff. And I have a couple friends who got saved before I did, but went back to drugs. And I think the Lord cut them short and took their lives before they could really mess up their testimony and mess up their reward in heaven. It's a very gracious act that he did. So uh, the sin of the death, my understanding of it is a persistent sin that the Lord graciously stops before it does damage in this world and the next. I'm not sure if I understand your question. You might need to state it again, but if if somebody were to answer the second question about um, what would you say to God, why should I let you into heaven, and somebody answered that they started listing their fruits, they said the right answer. I'm believing in Jesus Christ as my Savior. If God were to say to you, are you really a believer? Well, I would expect the person, if he knew what he was doing, to say, I, well, I believe your promises. If he gave a list of fruits, then I would probably have to talk about that with him to clarify what, why he's talking about that, if I'm, at, if I'm perceiving your question right. Well, that's a good point then. Yeah. There are people who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but they also believe in good works. There's a big category of people out there, not just the JWs, but, but other groups would say that. So, yeah, it, it, it's good to know what they don't believe in. So try to surface what, they're, what they were not trusting in. I like to say trusting in Jesus Christ alone, and that, that kind of isolates it from the good works. Our brother says he appreciated the comment that I like to preach the gospel of grace to the unsaved and the grace of the gospel to the saved, do we in the grace camp fully appreciate everything about grace? No, I don't think we do. We'd be on our faces. We'd be on our faces before God, worshiping him. But that's why we're here, to appreciate it more and more. And uh, the more I appreciate it, the more I want to live for him. We're, we're all headed in that direction. That's a good point, Diane, yeah. It's not, believe in Jesus is too ambiguous. Believe in Jesus for eternal life. Is is clearer. Very good. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.